Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Weathers, and welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I want to uh, invite all of you uh, to review last week's offering here, which had to do with mindfulness. Uh, Scott Killaby was a guest last week, and it's a very special interview dialogue that, that Scott and I had, and I recommend all of you to seek uh, out the that video. If you didn't get a chance to catch it live, it'll be available on Ask an Addiction Specialist uh, in their archives, and so highly recommend that. Today's topic <clears throat> is also the topic of uh, a couple of groups I lead each week here locally at Beginnings uh, Treatment Centers. Uh, this afternoon, I just got done leading a group with the men. Uh, these are men uh, seeking uh, healing from uh, serious addiction, typically uh, to heroin or methamphetamine, uh, and oftentimes a long-term severe addiction. And uh, we used to call this group the, the men's shame group and realized that that's a bit of a misnomer. And so we adopted this new title of unshaming, that it's the men's unshaming group. And then on Fridays, I lead a, a, a group with both genders represented, all of the clients. And the topic there oftentimes will include unshaming as well. And so today's presentation is part one of a, part, uh, of a two-part series. Today we'll be focusing on uh, kind of assessing and diagnosing shame in our lives. <clears throat> and I'll provide theoretical and clinical examples uh, based in research. I also want to take a, a dive today by providing a, a personal example. And my wish in doing this is that it will be suggestive for your own reflections. There are a couple of journaling exercises, and we'll get to these uh, in the latter half of today's presentation, a couple of journaling exercises that are meant to evoke reflection on shame in, our, in our, each of our individual lives, as well as how shame <clears throat> is so uh, uh, integral, integrally connected to various addictive behaviors, if not to substance, then to other tension-reducing behaviors that help us to ward off shame or help us to numb it out. And so, Today will be kind of about uh, uh, exposing and exploring shame as it manifests. We'll be talking some about what's to be done with it, but that's really going to be the focus of next week's Ask an Addiction Specialist. So what I want to do today is start by talking about shame in terms of how it's essential to successful, sustained recovery. Um, uh, recovery from addictions of all kinds. You guys, if, if you got a chance to see last week's presentation with uh, Scott Killaby, there's a way that that conversation universalized addiction, to look at addiction um, in, its, uh, in its Latin root sense, which is enslavement. So all the many things that we can be enslaved to. We can certainly be enslaved to alcohol and other drugs. And oftentimes that'll be the focus of our conversations here, but it's not meant to exclude at all uh, the impact on our brains and our being uh, with all the other addictions that we're subject to, including behavioral addictions, everything from being addicted to sex and shopping and gambling and work, uh, and certainly eating can be uh, complicated for those of us who are enslaved to eating or not eating. Just basically, you can create a long, long list of our various enslavements. And so what we're talking about today is looking at the integral connection between shame on the one hand and addiction on the other, and that to create the foundation for sustained, successful recovery, it requires our really addressing shame and finding uh, a, a way of managing and dealing with it. And so that's that's really the subject of these two presentations. The number one trigger for relapse to any of our addictive behaviors, including to substance, is stress. There's a fair bit of research to, to support that. And the idea, uh, it, there's different ways of approaching this. I wanna look at it, first of all, in terms of the brain and talk about uh, what happens in the brain uh, in and around stress and how it predisposes us towards towards uh, addiction. Let's say that you're anxious or in some other way distressed, could be depressed, uh, could be bored, is that when we find something that will pull us out of this unpleasant state, it's hard not to get addicted to it. And the biology behind that explains it, uh, can be very helpful in explaining it, is that there is dopamine activated in the, in the central part of the brain, in the reward center of the brain, 
and uh, that dopamine is linked to uh, an unexpected reward and the unexpected reward is relief, let's say, from distress, depression, anxiety, boredom, it's just some examples. And so dopamine is secreted and it actually locks into the learning process. I learn that whatever this behavior is, including ingesting substances that alter my state of mind from previously being unhappy or stressed out to now being mellowed out and content, that gets remembered in the brain and the, and the kind of the chemical loop here, dopamine is activated in response to pleasurable alternative, let's say, relief from unpleasant state. And glutamate locks it into our, into our memory, hardwires it in. We get a loop there that gets tied right into what are referred to as triggers. And if you think about triggers for a second, we can think about if I've been addicted, for example, to alcohol and other drugs, it can be any stimulus uh, that reminds me of that substance will be a trigger for a dopamine response inside. In fact, the dopamine um, will come up whether I'm ingesting the substance or not. The same thing applies to any kind of addictive behavior. And so uh, you get the external cues that remind me, uh, remind you of our various addictions. And then there's the internal cues, uh, oftentimes related to stress, that themselves become triggers. So let's say that I'm doing fine and then begin to move into more of a somber and then depressed mood. That depressed mood itself becomes a trigger for seeking out the addictive uh, temporary antidote. And so if it's for a substance, I reach for the substance. If it's for another behavior that temporarily distracts me, numbs me out, heightens my mood, I'll reach for that, I'll engage with that. And so that's the way that you see the dopamine glutamate cycle going. Dopamine is released in terms of an unexpected reward that helps me to escape whatever unpleasant state I was in. Glutamate locks it into memory. And then anytime that I encounter an external cue or trigger, as well as an internal cue or trigger, I'm subject to the addictive uh, reflex in a sense. The number one trigger for relapse to my addictive behavior is stress. The number one stressor for most individuals is relationship. I wanna talk just for a few moments about uh, what we found in the last 50 years of research and particularly advanced in the last 20 years, which have included the possibility of looking at what goes on in relationship in the brain via brain scan technology. Contemporary attachment theory has addressed for the last uh, few decades the centrality of our connection to one another. And there are three characteristics that we look for, for sure, as a foundation of feeling connected to others. And I want to discuss these both in terms of the positive element as well as what happens negatively when these are absent. So it's key uh, for our emotional well-being and even for our physical well-being. There's all kinds of research to suggest that relationships keep us not only emotionally robust and healthy, but also physically vital and alive. Is that first of all, I need to have uh, I need to have you be accessible or available to me. And so, at the very uh, most basic level. Are, are, are there loved ones in my environment that I can count on reliably to be there? That would be looking at accessibility. Secondly, and I think probably uh, once you've made it the foundational kind of uh, availability, once that's in place, are you responsive to me? Psychology talks about this in terms of mirroring. And I just spoke about it today in our group, in fact. Uh, we were talking about gratitudes today. And we introduced the idea of emotional responsiveness in terms of being grateful and really registering that gratitude for anybody that we know in our lives who is not only accessible, but also emotionally responsive, cares enough to listen, cares enough to respond to what we bring to them without judgment, uh, creates a space in which we can share ourselves and feel accurately seen or again mirrored. So this would have to do with the dimension of responsiveness that attachment theory looks at. By the way, I should say this. Uh, it's an unfortunate term in some ways, but uh, the way that it's evolved from psychoanalysis into contemporary psychological uh, theory and research, attachment uh, in a psychological frame simply means relationship or intimacy. It's connection. And it's the technical term used for our being connected to one another is attachment. These are uh, our, our earliest attachment relationships 
form, for example, the blueprints or the templates for our not only our future relationships, but also for our entire emotional um, kind of scaffolding, the way that we're organized emotionally. So what we're talking about in terms of attachment and uh, specifically around accessibility and responsiveness is just two examples, is that it's not just an early developmental need, it's a lifespan need. There's no point in our lives where we don't need to be securely and meaningfully attached in the ways we're talking about this. And we'll talk about the shadow side of this in a minute when there's a lack of these. But there's a third quality I want to talk about. We talked about accessibility. We talked about responsiveness. Thirdly, is that attachment theory talks about engagement. And what is meant specifically here is, uh, I'm reminded of one of the early theorists that had so much impact, still continues to have much impact on uh, relationally based forms of psychotherapy, where he said that every one of us desires to be the gleam in our mother's eye. And what he was talking about is engagement. Engagement is that spark that feeling special to somebody else and you can see it, so to speak, in their eye, you can hear it in their tone of voice. It reminds me of today when I came into the treatment center and was getting the room set up for our group. There were a couple of men lying down. It was the end of their lunch hour. They were lying down and resting and I got involved in a conversation with a third individual and and began to be aware that one of the people that had been, one of the men had been sleeping was waking up and I apologized to him. I said, I'm sorry if I woke you. And he said, that's okay, Dr. Bob, your voice is so soothing to me. It actually wasn't a problem. And I think what he was commenting on, first of all, I said, I appreciated that. And I know him well, and I'm glad that that's the case. I think part of what he was commenting on is whether it's in the look of my eye or the tone of my voice, there's so much that gets expressed in between and underneath and above words. And it can be in these, uh, psychology calls them paraverbal communication. Everything besides the actual content of what I'm saying communicates so much. In fact, communication theorists say that 90% of our communication is in fact paraverbal. Sometimes this is simplified just to nonverbal communication. Everything besides the verbal uh, or semantic content communicates. In this case, we're talking about engagement. So I can tell by the way that you talk to me. I can tell by the way that you look at me. I can tell by the way that you respond to me whether or not I'm the gleam in your eye or not. And that this is very important. It reminds me of what the uh, uh, the seminal theorist of psychotherapy and psychology, Carl Rogers, uh, talked about how important it is for the therapist to prize his or her clients, that the clients have the experience of being prized. I like that. I think he's talking about engagement there. So accessibility, responsiveness, and engagement are three of the bedrocks that serve as the fundamental foundation, let's say, for for engagement or uh, for attachment and relationship. Now what happens, and we're going to tie this in a, in a moment into why it is that relationships can be so stressful. What happens when there's the absence of one or more of these dimensions? Rather than somebody being accessible, they're consistently not available. Um, think about this for yourself in terms of, of the people in your life that are accessible or available to you and times that they're not available. Or maybe there are other people that are erratic in their accessibility. And think of what that, the feelings that that stirs inside. Think as well of what it's like to be talking to somebody that's, that, that you count on to really show up for you. And instead they're preoccupied and they're disengaged or non-responsive. Um, it might be more like this. It reminds me of the kind of the archetypal example of a of a, a couple sitting together at the breakfast table. And in this case, it's a man and a woman. The woman is speaking to her husband and, and uh, she realizes she doesn't have his attention. And he says, no, honey, I'm listening to everything you're saying. And he can re recite back what she just said. Um, the problem there is not that he doesn't have the, the content because he, he can recite it back. The fact is, is he's not engaged or responsive to her emotions, the process around the words. And oftentimes, most often that matters more to us than a literal parroting back of a response. If that's all we needed, we could just tape report our conversations and play them back and we would feel heard. It's the engagement or the responsiveness of our partner that matters. And so someone that uh, responds uh, partially leaves us feeling unmet. And that's another frustration. And you can think about people in your life or recent experiences. I'm going to talk about one later today, in fact, an example, 
where someone was very responsive to me in the context of someone else having not been responsive to me. So it was really contrasted there. And the one was the, the responsiveness felt so good and it was actually a healing interaction following on an interaction that left me really out of sorts with myself as will happen with an unresponsive or a, one of the technical terms in psychology, a malattuned response. Rather than an attuned response that's tuned in, a malattuned, it's actually badly attuned and that has a big impact on our emotional uh, well-being. And then thirdly, uh, around engagement, think of what it's like when you interact with somebody that's dear to you and you can see them light up in interaction with you, what that feels like inside. And compare that with somebody that doesn't light up with you. It's particularly painful if you think about somebody who generally is engaged with you and for whatever reason isn't. Uh, I think of it sometimes in terms of kind of dead eyes looking at you and think of, of what that feels like inside. Well, a unreliably, or, or I should say a, 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 a reliably inaccessible person, somebody that is non-responsive, somebody who's disengaged, will definitely stir up our, our stress levels, that's for sure. In terms of relationships, nowhere more than in uh, the phenomenon of shame. We've talked about this earlier uh, uh, in previous uh, podcasts. I want to just quickly review today different uh, definitions of shame so we can get on the same page. And then I want to go into looking at the research that suggests that shame of all of the emotions uh, is the most stressful. And it's very much a social emotion, and I'm going to talk about that as well. So what is shame? One way to look at this is the way that psychology talks about it is shame represents threats to our social, our, our being socially accepted, that is being cast out of a group that matters to us, out of a relationship or out of a group, and how that connects. And you can see this in the diagram here. I have an arrow that's bi-directional. The lack of social acceptance goes right into my feeling uh, lower self-esteem, feeling uh, badly about myself. And as I feel bad about myself, itself, it, that itself feeds an increased non-acceptance with my social group. And so they're really uh, two sides of the coin, it seems like to me. Threats to social acceptance, threats to self-esteem. And either one of those is a way to get us into the, get us into the uh, uh, arena of shame. Let me talk about some of the research that's been done with shame. Cortisol is one of the two uh, hormones uh, associated with stress. The other is adrenaline. And in, in, a, in a, a review of over 200 studies of what is it that stirs up the highest cortisol elevation in all of us as human beings, consistently it was what I just read to you, which is the definition of shame. Threats to social acceptance. If I feel threatened in terms of my connection to others, that stirs up increased cortisol, which manifests emotionally, uh, psychologically as stress. And or if I'm feeling badly about myself, I feel like I'm defective, feel like I'm not lovable, that also is associated with very heightened cortisol levels. How do we understand this elevation in cortisol? Let's turn to evolutionary psychology. There's a, a do, domain, and it's still relatively new in psychology, that views human psychology in the context of uh, our entire evolution as a species. From an evolutionary perspective, why would it be that shame um, uh, kicks up such high stress responses? We don't have to go so far back in the evolution of our particular species to realize that if we're not connected to a community, starting with our families, if we're disconnected from them, that our literal survival is at stake. It's, it's, it's imperiled. And so it's a little bit like putting your hand on a hot stove, although it's painful. It's a very powerful signal to remove your hand immediately or you're going to suffer serious tissue damage. The same with shame, is that if I'm threatened in terms of my connection to my family or to my social group or to a larger community, if I'm threatened by that, uh, um, in comes the same kind of startled response. It manifests as this feeling of shame and it actually connects right into feeling bad about myself because in terms of self-esteem, one of the ways I sustain my self-esteem is being strongly, securely connected to you and to others. And when that 
that's threatened, the whole house of cards comes uh, tumbling down. This manifests as the interior world of shame. Let's try a different angle for just a moment also talking about shame. And then we're going to uh, check in real quickly for any comments from you out there. I invite you to share any questions that you might have. And we'll take a little breather and then we're going to come back with a uh, couple of personal examples and journal exercises for you today. But let's look at uh, shame from a couple of, uh, from another angle as well. Shame and stigma, two sides of a coin. Another way that psychology talks about shame, as does sociology, is that shame is the interior experience of being rejected by my social group and the subsequent lowering of my self-esteem, the, the way that it undermines my feeling okay about myself. The flip side of this same coin is stigma. And stigma is the outer version of this. And stigma simply means judgment, negative judgment, um, or rejection from a social group. And you can actually talk about shame in terms of self-stigmatization. Now, what the heck do I mean by that? If I feel judged or ostracized by my reference group socially, it's nearly impossible not to internalize that as becoming my own view of myself. And so when I internalize outside stigma, it becomes self-stigma, and that self-stigma, including the judgments I turn towards myself, as well as the feelings that come with that, uh, equal shame. And so another way to understand shame is to understand it as external stigma internalized to where it becomes my inner world. Okay, before we move on, let me just check in with you all to see if there's any questions or comments from our audience. And uh, also I'm gonna ask for you to get a piece of paper and a pencil because I'm gonna give you um, a couple of uh, journal exercises as we move into the second half of today's presentation. So I hope you have a, a piece of paper handy and a, a, a pen or a pencil. I'm gonna try an experiment right now and I wanna share um, a, a, a recent experience that I had that I think is an example of, of shame. It's not one of these catastrophically big traumas in my life. And I, I think I want to suggest that it doesn't have to be that in your life. I think what I'm going to suggest is that after we complete today's presentation, is that you spend some time uh, writing out a recent experience for you of shame or stigma. I think it makes a big difference if we kind of get some personal skin in the game in this conversation. And uh, it's only fair that if, if I'm asking you to do that, that I do that as well. And what I'd like to do is share an example. I'm going to do the best I can to uh, share an example that links to some of the earlier uh, points that we've made around shame and how it results in an inner stigmatization and an inner self-doubt as well as some of the things that help to contain or manage it. Um, and I, as I said, we're going to go into more detail about breaking the cycle of shame next week, but it's impossible for me to talk about this particular example of shame without also including uh, some of the things that helped me to, to uh, make it through the, uh, the, the kind of contraction that goes with shame. So let me share the example with, an example with you, and I'd like you to do this. As I'm sharing this example with you, could you make reference to your own experience if it triggers a memory or an association for you, whatever it triggers might well be what you journal about. I'm gonna have you journal about that and I'm gonna kind of journal out loud in real time with you. And there'll be a second journaling uh, exercise and I'll introduce that uh, a few minutes down the line, so. So here's the experience and see if you can identify with this in some way in your own life. I think that all of us, uh, I certainly do, may have these, these very kind of key critical uh, memories in our mind across our lives, particularly in our early developmental years, that they end up being uh, remembered. Uh, a single memory or a single example can hold a thousand other instances in which something happened. And, and since we're talking about shame, sometimes we'll remember, even uh, Sigmund Freud wrote about this, we'll remember an instance and it actually covers, it's like an average of a whole bunch of other instances. And so uh, this example I'm gonna give you, I'll actually tie into early childhood experience in a moment, which was not apparent as it was happening, but it's oftentimes that way is that a, sh a shaming experience in the present will link to this long lineage of other shaming experiences. And for many of us, it can date back to our earliest days. So here's the example. 
One of my real loves in life is drumming. I've drummed since I was a young boy and I've been out now for over 50 years and I've uh, drummed actively in all kinds of different contexts. When I was in grade school, I just practiced uh, the rudiments of, of drumming. And by the time I was in junior high school into high school, I was playing in marching band and concert band and concert orchestra and pep band and stage band and in high school started my own rock and roll group so I was playing rock and roll and actually played professionally for a year. It's been a mainstay of my life. Would never have imagined that here I am at age 62 still drumming quite actively and nowadays it manifests in terms of a jazz combo that uh, I lead here locally in Orange County and uh, there are different uh, musicians that come through this jazz combo. We're kind of constantly, the way it goes in jazz is that you oftentimes have musicians who sit in with you, maybe even for just a single performance, and because we're all familiar with the same kind of uh, basic standards, the same literature in jazz, we can do that. So uh, a recent experience I had was this, is that uh, I had invited a group of musicians to play together, and one of them in particular I had looked forward to playing with this person for a long time, and uh, uh, this person had uh, made several recordings that were some of my favorites in jazz, and, uh, and we finally had a chance to play together, and I was in bliss. You never know how it's going to go in terms of chemistry until you get on the stage, and so it, it, here was our first performance. We're performing live. We'd never rehearsed together. And what I experienced was this uh, incredible in syncness. It was really... Uh, complete joy for me to, to know this person's kind of aesthetic as a musician and to join with him in a sense almost call and response, riffing off of what he was playing and, and uh, just being thrilled by it. What happens for me when I'm drumming uh, and, and having this kind of connection, oftentimes I kind of whoop and holler underneath the drumming and you can kind of see it, if you can't hear it, you can see it, that I'm absolutely transported uh, into an ecstatic state and I was. So we played uh, two or three sets just uh, for me in this state. I just felt so fortunate. In fact, there were audience members that were commenting on the electricity that was so palpable in our group. Uh, and I was, uh, I was attributing some significant part uh, to my being joined with this uh, fellow musician. In between the second and the third sets, um, I sat with this musician and, and uh, I, I said to him how much I would love to perform just his music, maybe another musical group that we would just perform his music. It was a way to honor him and, and to express appreciation to him. And his response should have been my first clue that this wasn't going to go well. His response was, well, uh, get me the money to make that happen and I'll do it. And I remember feeling inside uh, this, it was like this, kind of ships passing in the night. I remember thinking I've just... Uh, offered this loving, supportive, uh, affirming response to his music making, and he's cast it back to me kind of in the language of, of, uh, of money, and uh, it was like, mine was a kind of a spiritual <laughs> response, and his was a mercenary kind of response. And it's not to say there's not a place for money, and I make sure as the band leader that people get paid uh, well, but it was that that response was so off, but it actually got worse, and so, I, I walked away from that interaction kind of bruised a bit. Again, we're kind of in, in the, the break between two musical sets. And then I sat down uh, for a moment and was taking a picture of the stage. I wanted to send it to a couple of people that I loved to see what I was up to that day. And uh, he came over and, and, then, and then began what was even more challenging for me. He began to criticize my drumming. He, he began to uh, uh, actually begin to give me advice about how I could play the cymbals better. Uh, ironically, he named as his model uh, for how I could play the cymbals better, he named one of my very favorite drummers of all time, a jazz drummer, whose music I know very well. <laughs> and I suspect that I know this jazz drummer better than, than most other musicians know this drummer. So it was ironic that he picked somebody as the example of how I should play. And it's actually somebody that I've emulated uh, for the last several decades. But, uh, but my response wasn't primarily cognitive. I wasn't comparing it to this drummer or that drummer. There was something that was so painful to me and I was feeling it in the moment, enough so that I felt my, my temper beginning to rise as he continued to give me advice about how I could drum better. And I, uh, I thought I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go off on him, to be honest with you, and I'll talk about shame and its relationship to anger in just a moment. 
But uh, the pragmatist in me realized, well, we still have one musical set. I don't dare do this. Just, you know, blow my top right now uh, and spoil the rest of our, our performance there. I felt responsible not only to uh, the audience, but also to the, the other members of the band. And so the best I could say is, as I looked at him, and I looked at him with uh, virtually no expression, speaking of dead eyes, and I looked at him and I said, duly noted. I'll come back to that phrase in just a minute, too. And uh, that was the end of that interaction. We did play our, sec our third set, as you might predict, and now we're going to introduce the idea of shame. Uh, the third set was very muted for me. I was really pained by this interaction. It was so off. Something that I haven't mentioned about shame that, that may be helpful here. I worked years ago with a Swiss uh, psychologist, uh, uh, deep love for Mario Jacobi, who had written a book on shame called Shame and the Origins of Self-Esteem. And Mario shared with me, as well as wrote this in his book, that uh, one of his understandings of shame, the example he gave is of the child that runs to its mother or father with open arms, exuberant, joyful, and the parent responds with complete checked outness. In other words, does not respond in kind to the enthusiasm, but rather uh, puts a damper on it. It's actually sometimes referred to as exthusiasm, an interaction that actually sucks the enthusiasm out of the moment. And, and as Mario talked about this, that that can be seen as the origin of shame. And I'll tell you what, I can definitely relate to that because in this experience I'm sharing with you right now, uh, the experience of mortification inside led to this contraction. I was in essence coming to mom or dad, let's say, in this case a fellow musician for whom I have much admiration, with these joyful gifts. And the first one was hit away. It's like, I don't care about your gift, I just want money. And then the, the second gift, it was implied, which is, I had experienced such a radical communion with, with uh, this musician artistically. And to realize that, that not only had he not experienced that, but he had some tips that would help me play better that might make that possible. It's kind of uh, implied in, in what he was telling to me. He certainly did not get what, what had just happened on stage for our previous two sets. I was heartbroken by this. As we played the third set, I shared with you that I was that I was uh, uh, very much kind of tamped down. Part of what I was aware of was feeling doubt about my ability as a drummer, my ability as a band leader, my ability as a musician, my judgment of being able to tell when something's happening or not. And uh, it led to a real flatness in the third set for which I have great sorrow. But the loss was so huge in terms of the connection. We talked earlier about about uh, engagement or attachment. Uh, I'd experienced tremendous engagement and intimacy with this other musician in a, in, a musical, in a musical way. And it was clear from our conversation that that was only one way, that it was not mutual. And that was killing for me. And it manifests uh, in, the, in the remainder of the performance as a flatness, kind of a lacklusterness on my part. But it got worse. I, uh, after the performance, I loaded up my drums and I, and I went home. And I could feel my, my mood doing this, began to get more and more depressed. And it was clear to me that it was a function of this mismatch that had just happened musically and uh, in, in our two respective experiences. I'll tell you what turned it around, is that I had a chance that evening to have a conversation with a very dear friend about just what I just shared with you. And this friend listened to me and held me, psychologically speaking, in my pain, didn't give me advice, uh, and thankfully didn't go off on this other individual. I, it, that wouldn't have been helpful. That was part of my instinct, was to, to aggress, and I didn't do that. But it helped me to begin to contain this kind of downward spiral that I got into with increasing depression. And my way of thinking about it, well, I, I went to, to bed later that evening feeling like that that conversation helped to stop the bleeding, so to speak. I didn't get more depressed. But what's also true is I didn't get undepressed. I stayed depressed. It's just that I didn't get worse. And I think it would have gone, gotten worse. And so to have somebody be responsive and with me made a huge difference in terms of stopping it getting worse. I woke up the next morning, and this is what happened. I woke up the next morning, and as I uh, often do, I wake up and have quiet time in the morning where I, I meditate, I reflect, uh, and I journal. And what began to become clear to me that morning 
was that what had gotten touched for me was an experience that goes all the way down to my very core. And it's the experience, like I shared earlier with my friend Mario, the experience of not being seen uh, that goes back to the very beginning for me developmentally with two parents that were very preoccupied for their own reasons and rarely able to be responsive or mirror my experience. Again and again, as a quite enthusiastic boy, there was this non-mirroring response and it got recapitulated in this interaction uh, with the jazz music. And as I journaled this out on the heels of having talked this out the night before, I could feel myself actually beginning to feel better. And so it wasn't a matter of just stopping the bleeding. That happened the night before. Now it was beginning to create inside a productive, positive uh, response to what had happened. And I found that this additional information uh, helped me in terms of my mood. So it was a combination of uh, reaching out to others for support when I had felt so ill-supported or ill-engaged in this interaction. And it was also utilizing personal resources, including meditation to just hold and be with unpleasant feeling, including self-reflection and including journaling that self-reflection. If the first exercise I'm asking you to do today after we finish this podcast is to write down your own companion experience of shame or stigma, and you can use my example as a... Uh, as maybe a, a launching pad for your own reflections. The second exercise that I want you to do has to do with the second slide here. The second one has to do with threats to self-acceptance and others accepting us leading to relapse. So let me talk about that. And I'll again talk about this personally. There's the initial trigger, which was this unpleasant experience with this fellow musician. And then there was feeling heard and supported by a dear friend that helped to stop the bleeding. And then I would have thought that it was enough for me to have a quiet time in which I was able to journal this all out. But what happened uh, the following night was very telling for me. And I'm going to talk about this in terms of relapse. And by relapse here, I, I, I would include resorting to any regressive behavior for the purposes of reducing tension, reducing distress, soothing ourselves. And that might well be relapse to a substance. If you're prone to drinking alcohol, it would be using alcohol to manage the stirred up feelings. If you have some other addictive behavior, uh, it could be working too much. It could be any number of the ways that we soothe ourselves, uh, but, but ways that keep us from actually getting to the root of the problem and healing it. Uh, enslaved to an antidote that's only temporary. My particular relapse that I want to talk about didn't happen the first night. And remember the next morning I had what felt like a very, um, a very healing kind of uh, quiet time. It was the following night where I got into, uh, with another friend, I got into an altercation with another friend over feeling misunderstood. And as that was happening, it felt like it was all this person's fault. And it was only later that evening and then the second morning, the next morning, where it got clear to me that what had gotten evoked that first day with the jazz musician in our mismatch, and then my recognizing in my quiet time the next morning of other ways, I just journaled different ways that I've experienced bringing gifts and having those be pushed aside or misunderstood and how painful that is. And in fact, it got enacted that second night uh, with a good friend, and I, I blew my top then. I didn't blow my top the first day, I blew it the second day. And so I needed to settle down to a deeper level, and the truth is, is by the second morning, more quiet time, more journaling, and then on, on the second day, a chance for also for another in-depth conversation with yet another friend about this, uh, brought me to this, is that... You remember how I said that I said uh, to this musician, I said, duly noted. It took me a couple of days to realize that I probably don't want to play with this musician again. And that's disappointing. But the greater disappointment would, would be to ignore the feedback that we're missing each other and that we're not really connecting. Ignore that and expose myself to even more of these, what I called earlier, malattunements. 
And I realized the kind of the wisdom implicit in duly noted is that it took me a couple of days to duly note that I don't want to rely on this person because they're not responsive. They're not engaged with me. And relationship is a two-way street. If it's, if it's only one way, it's not going to be nourishing in the long haul. It's not going to be nearly adequate nourishment. So by three days, let's see, one, two, by the third day, I rose from the dead. <laughs> by the third day, I was able actually to get a standpoint inside to apologize for what happened the night previous where I lost my top. It's, this is oftentimes what happens in shame is that we'll, uh, rather than feel the uncomfortable feelings and continue to hold them and hopefully go right down underneath them for the sake of healing, we'll uh, turn it out towards others in terms of aggression. And that's exactly what happened. It really uh, blindsided me and him. Uh, uh, and, I, and I have to tell you that I owned up. I, I uh, texted this person the, the, the next morning. We had an exchange by text where I owned up to what I understood having led to our, 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 our uh, uh, mis misattunement, our, our disagreement, and it was healing. It was healing just to own that. And also, I have to say, settling down into an acceptance that there's not every relationship is, is going to work for me, and remembering something that as a child is very hard to know, especially if it's a significant caregiver like a parent or a sibling or another loved one, it's hard to know, uh, it's hard to imagine that we can get by without whatever it is they give us in terms of love, whatever quantum of love or nurturance we get. And so only in adulthood, and it took me three days to recognize, I don't need to get the crumbs under the table from this relationship, which is what it would be feeling like. I don't need to do that. I don't need to cast my pearls that direction. There are many other people that will provide for much more mutuality and nourishment. And I went from feeling not socially accepted in this interaction um, with the jazz musician to beginning to find support in social acceptance by good friends, even one that I had a disagreement with, we healed that, and realizing that, that I do have oxygen, I do have nourishment in relationships that I can count on, including with other musicians. Uh, I'm not reliant on, on, this, uh, on this individual for so little for so little. And so the duly noted really is duly noted. Um, that I don't give away the gold in certain situations like this again. And so that's the whole cycle. There's the, the experience of feeling shamed. You need to improve your symbol technique, Bob. Uh, and also the sense of shame in terms of, I thought that we were totally connecting. And it's clear to me that that was in my experience, but not in this other musician's experience. So there's the shame that comes with that and the self-stigmatization. Maybe I'm not really connecting musically. Maybe I'm not so good. Maybe I should just give up being a drummer. It's crazy what gets, start, gets going with this shame. But why does it get going so, uh, uh, so majorly? Because for many of us, these experiences in the here and now tie into uh, very kind of bedrock, I think of them as kind of blueprint experiences that are foundations for our vulnerability to shame. And so I remember having one supervisor who said to me, Bob, that response inside the brain has no time stamp. And so let's say for right now that shame has no time stamp. I experience shame here and now with this musician, and it goes right back to the earliest shame that I experienced developmentally growing up in a family that, that had some real limitations in terms of attachment. And now I'm back into all of that insecurity, doubting myself, doubting my connection. And the healing of that was gradual. It took several days, but it took several days of an oxygen-rich environment coming from others, as well as providing that to myself via the quiet time, the meditation, the self-reflection, the journaling, for me to come back to duly noted and to actually feel that without rancor. It's more of an acceptance. And, uh, and also more, uh, there's also a sense for me in that of um, resolution or resolve. It's like, no, I, I don't need to do that again. I can, I can nurture myself better than doing that again. Shame paralyzes us. And I experienced that in this, in this experience uh, that I shared with you. And I'm hoping that you're able to generate a shame experience that paralyzed you as well. And 
it led me to feeling depressed. It led me to uh, doubting myself. And it even evoked in me the next day when it got re-triggered in an interaction where I felt misunderstood. It uh, got me re-triggered into a, for me, a relapse behavior, which is my aggressing against somebody. Uh, Freud called this displacement where instead of handling a situation uh, directly like we, we, we should, with the, like we that would take care of it, we indirectly turn it towards somebody else. I think of it as the image of kicking the dog, being mad at a family member, but instead taking it out on one's pet, which is cruel and unusual punishment for sure. And it's not uh, unusual for shame to take this kind of more indirect path. If we don't turn it towards ourselves, we can turn it towards somebody else and shame them. And that's what I did on that second night. And so I'm hoping that you can see how shame not only paralyzes us in terms of creative self-expression, it paralyzes us relationally to where it's almost like the poor get poorer. As I get caught in the shame spiral, I end up taking it out on relationships. Those people end up distancing from me, which just exacerbates the blows to my self-esteem and there we're caught in the quicksand, so to speak. There is, uh, there is a solution to this, and it seems like to me if shame paralyzes, then information frees. And that's, that's why I'm asking you to engage in this exercise on your own. Um, and I have to tell you that my own sharing this with others, including here today with you, as well as my writing this down, the journaling, getting it out of my upset emotional center of my brain and getting it up to the frontal cortex, which begins to think of things and write them, put them into language, that that, that, that way of communicating good information frees us up. We can communicate that with others and it's critical that they be, um, that they be responsive to us for sure. And we can also be responsive to ourselves. And so part of what I had to do was to forgive myself and not shame myself for having had such a negative reaction. I did go into shame, but let me at least not shame myself for being shamed. Shame will do that. It will suck us down into a black hole and it will make us feel bad about already feeling bad. And so what we're suggesting here is a different way of communicating with others and with ourselves that brings in light, that brings in oxygen. And shame doesn't do well in the presence of light and oxygen. It actually begins to dissipate. And I can speak of this concretely. And what I'd like you to do in terms of your own journaling uh, uh, for today's exercise, journal an instance in, in as much detail as you remember along the spirit of what I shared with you, an instance in which you experienced shame. See if you can link it in terms of what you felt back to any other experiences you've had in your life of that. And, and then see what you did with that. If you're like me, it was kind of a mixed response. Part of me had the good sense and had enough uh, friends around me to be able to reach out. That feels like a very um, healthful response, but I wasn't yet done with it even when I thought I was, and it came when I lashed out at another friend uh, in that form of displacement that I just talked about. And so look and see if you can track any of your own relapses. It could be to addictive substance. It could be to addictive behavior. I used the word earlier of regression. What shame does is it, it, it locks us or paralyzes us into the subcortex, the emotional center of our brain that does not have access to the cortical, the, the neocortex, which is the part of our brain that is able to problem solve it's a part of our brain that's able to see long-term solutions as opposed to short-term fixes. It's the part of our brain that is compassionate towards others and towards ourselves. It's the part of our brain that makes good decisions morally as opposed to yielding to impulses, which is what the emotional core or the subcortex, the limbic system, that's what that does. So what we're trying to do is to transfer the center of gravity from the limbic system in the center of our brain back to the frontal cortex, the executive, uh, the executive function of our brain. And we can do that by good communication, by sharing good information. And in that spirit then today, I really want you to do these exercises, bring, bring these exercises up into awareness because even writing them out, and I invite you, if you have someone you can share them with, to do that too. Even writing them out, much less sharing them with some of the, somebody else, it gets it up into the frontal cortex of ourselves, out of the emotional center, which just operates reactively, which I did 
as a function of shame. It does another thing too, and I'll finish with this, is that it, it, it aids us not only in self-regulating, being able to manage our own distress around shame, it also moves us into the arena of co-regulation where I rely on others to support me and I found that that was indispensable and I think you know what I mean by this. And so if you're able to share these experiences with others that again are attentive and accessible, are responsive and mirroring, and who don't judge you, that actually see who you are and remember that amidst, amidst this shame, even maybe amidst relapse, that's pure gold. That's pure gold in terms of co-regulation. And my own view is that we need both. We need to find strategies for self-regulation. We need to enhance and utilize uh, others for support as well in terms of co-regulation. I want to go into that more next week. Final slide. I want to go into that next week when we talk about breaking the vicious cycle of, of shame. We'll be revisiting self-regulation, some different means that I want to suggest, some exercises related to that. In fact, if you do this homework this week in terms of journaling, bring that back with you to next week's session. It's the part two of this series, and we'll be going more into depth in terms of what does it actually look like in terms of strategies I can utilize both um, inside myself as, as well as interpersonally to uh, reduce and, uh, and, and bounce back from a shame attack. I want to thank you for joining me. Final slide. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I uh, appreciate very much your presence with me. Um, I really recommend that you go to my website, which is listed up here, which is at this point developed into a repository of a whole bunch of articles. I just finished a series of 20 articles on unshaming, and I recommend uh, that to you as a resource, and you can find it at this website. It's uh, freely given, and uh, and every... Uh, every uh, uh, post that I offer there has a journaling exercise in the spirit of what we did today. So if you want to flesh this out and deepen into this material for your own sake, I highly recommend uh, uh, those resources as well. I hope that you'll also review uh, today's video if you found it helpful. Uh, certainly do the exercise I suggested. May I also, in the spirit, uh, as I mentioned earlier, recommend that you, you review the just previous video, uh, the interview with Scott Killaby on uh, mindfulness and recovery because we'll be coming back to resources, including quiet time and mindfulness next week. And I feel like that, that his presentation goes hand in hand with how do we resolve these attacks on the self, especially from when they're from within. So uh, I hope to see you next week. Come back and join us at Ask an Addiction Specialist and take good care and happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Thanks for joining me today. Bye-bye.